the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a show dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about anything going on in your life as it relates to the Word of God, church questions. Maybe you've got some Easter questions or some um, Good Friday questions. We could take those as well. All we need you to do is to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Um, Hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, again, thanks for tuning in uh, tonight here at Calvary Chapel. I'm going to be teaching out of 1 Kings chapter 15. I'm going to do the first 24 verses uh, about about a good king. Most of it is about a good king, um, but who didn't finish so well? Sometimes we who are following the Lord uh, don't remember as we grow older in the Lord uh, to stay focused on uh, following uh, our Jesus. And uh, that's certainly the case with King Asa tonight. So that's tonight. Paula will be live in the studio with me uh, on the date day edition of the show tomorrow. We'd love your calls and questions. Uh, I'm going to, at the top of the second half hour, I'm going to talk about uh, day four in Jesus' Passion Week. So for now, let me get to some questions while we await your phone calls. My first question from our email inbox. This one is from Kevin. Uh, he says, hello, Pastor Ron. I was taught that man is soul, which has a physical body and a spirit. Genesis 2.7 says, and God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. My question is, if the physical body returns to the dust, do the soul and spirit return to God? Is the soul and spirit the same? Are the souls who serve Christ in Abraham's bosom uh, in Luke chapter 16? Uh, are they returned to God? Please help me out with this. I'm starting to be a little confused. Thank you kindly, uh, Kevin. I can I can help. I think I think we get um, uh, and there's so much secular, um, non biblically based information about soul and spirit, and I think I think we've got to look at the way that the words are used. Uh, when when we became a, a spirit, a, a living spirit. Uh, when God breathed the spirit of life into us. And of course, as born-again Christians, that happened a second time when the Holy Spirit was given to us as a deposit. But to separate the soul, now we can talk about the soul in a, in a way that would say 
my my desires are soulish, meaning carnal rather than godly. But I think when we start thinking about the soul and the spirit as occupying uh, this place inside us, I think that's where we're getting off base. Kevin, I think your question, uh, is the soul and the spirit the same? I think in the context of your question, they are exactly the same. So uh, don't get them confused. Just remember that we are we have these physical bodies, but these physical bodies only house the real us. And that's the person that we are, the spirit that we are. One of the reasons that the Bible says we are made in the image of God is because that spirit is going to live somewhere forever. And what we need to understand while we make the choice in this life where that's going to be, um, we're, we're, we're going to live somewhere forever, and um, um, that spirit is uh, going to be around um, for eternity. So soul and spirit are interchangeable in this case. Now, um, it didn't quite finish your question on Luke chapter 16, but those who served God faithfully, who believed and were justified by faith like Abraham was, um, they were in paradise until Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth um, we know about that from Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we know that from uh, Peter's epistles. Um, um, they had a victory um, proclamation delivered to them, and that's Jesus just went and set the captives free. And he led, cap- Ephesians writes it, says it this way, we, he led captives captive. Uh, uh, so they were they were captives to their environment, but then Jesus freed them and they were his captives. So uh, they went with Jesus into heaven, uh, and that's where they have been uh, ever since. They're in the presence of God, the same place that any of us go, Kevin, when in fact um, our time in this world is up. So I hope that makes sense to you. Don't be confused. It's exactly the same. Uh, remember that the, the references to soul primarily are secular. You know, they don't um, believe uh, that, that there's a spirit, um, that, that we're, we're creating the image of God. Um, so we Christians have sort of co-opted that into saying that, that we have soulish desires which are carnal desires rather than desires that would be pleasing to God. So, Kevin, I hope that simplifies it for you. It is exactly the same thing. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Henry. He wants to know, what is the difference between being born again and being filled with the Spirit? Well, it's, it's the, the difference, Henry, is that it's two different things, um, but one can't happen until the, the other happens. Of course, when we're born again, we're surrendering our heart to Jesus Christ. We're, we're coming to him, repenting of our sins. Repentance, remember, doesn't just mean, I'm sorry. It means changing uh, we meet Jesus, the old is gone and the new has come. And it's when we surrender to him, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart because I want to surrender my life to you. That's what being born again means. And the instant that we're born again, then we're filled with the Spirit of God and we become his. And, and you know, there's an old cartoon, there's a new sheriff in town. Well, that's when the Holy Spirit becomes a new sheriff. He's the one who's now calling the shots in your life. So being filled with the Spirit, being being um, um, indwelt by the Spirit of God, cannot happen until we have been uh, born again. Um, so they're, they're linked to one another, but being born again comes first, making the choice to serve Jesus. And then the power to serve Jesus comes in as Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Henry, say that, that uh, we, are, uh, we are given the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. So that's when the Spirit comes to live in us. That's the power that results from being born again. Acts 5.32 says God gives the Holy Spirit in the context there is always in power to those who are obedient. So when we obey God, when we do the right thing, we, we say, Jesus, I'm yours. That's when the Spirit of God comes in us. And once the Spirit of God is in us, Henry, 
then we're his, we're sealed. God himself guarantees our inheritance with that deposit. It's sort of like God is giving us a down payment on our eternal future. Henry, good question. Thanks very, very much. Here's a question from Phil. Phil says, I know God loves Israel, but Israel has been a mess from the beginning. Why can't Israel find peace instead of chaos? Well, you know, the, the Jesus is, uh, one of his names is the Prince of Peace. And until we come to the Prince of Peace, uh, Phil, there can be no peace. That's really important for you to understand. You know, we have this lifelong search for happiness and satisfaction and peace, but it never happens until we surrender our heart to Jesus Christ and worship God with our lives, which is what we were born to do. In the case of Israel, uh, the reason Israel has been a mess from the beginning is because they've rejected God. Um, even before Jesus came to this earth, uh, Israel was conflicted. If we go through, we're going through Kings uh, on Wednesday nights right now. And in 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 the, the both Kings and Chronicles accounts of Israel's history under the kings, um, you, you know, there's a whole bunch more bad being done than good. And the, the problem is that they're simply not obedient. Now, if you go all the way back to Moses, God uh, had them stand on the Mount uh, of Blessings and Cursings, Ebal and Gerizim. And he said, uh, you will be blessed if you do this. If you don't do this, you will be cursed. And they would repeat those blessings and cursings. Well, Israel has chosen to be cursed. When Jesus came, Phil, he came to his own and his own received him not. And because they rejected him, Jesus himself said, if you knew, if you only knew, that had come to gather you as a, a hen gathers her chicks. In other words, I've come to do good for you, and yet you didn't want me. They cried out, we will not have this man be king over us. Now, let me get make this more personal rather than national. Phil, the reason that people don't have peace, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're uh, ancient Israel or modern-day Israel, is because we like to sin. And that's really the only reason that we reject Jesus. No human being goes to hell for any reason other than rejecting Jesus. And the reason we reject Jesus is because we don't want to do what he says. We want to fashion a God of our own making. That has also always been Israel's problem. It started with the golden calf. Uh, and it didn't end there. You know, Israel was always worshiping the false gods of the peoples around them. And uh, we become like the gods that we worship. And those gods allowed Israel to sin, sexual immorality, uh, doing unthinkable things uh, was was always the problem. Um, we're studying that tonight with the division of the, the northern and the southern tribes. Um, the division occurred because they didn't want to stop sinning. And so, Phil, Israel's problem with finding peace is they've rejected Jesus Christ. And that will always be the case until Jesus appears. There's no hope for peace in the Middle East. There never will be hope until that moment when Jesus appears and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. And then Israel will find peace. It will come at a great cost. Two-thirds of Israel will be destroyed. Two-thirds of the Jews, the individual people, will be destroyed because they are enemies of God. One-third, God always has a remnant. One-third, this according to the prophecy of Zechariah, one-third of those people will look at him and say, where did you get these wounds? And he'll say, I got them in the house of my friends, and they will begin weeping and mourning like never before, realizing that when the Messiah came, they rejected him. And then they will align with Jesus Christ from that point forward. So, Phil, that's always the, 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 the problem when people, whether, again, nations or, or individuals, Jews or Gentiles, when people don't have peace, it's because we've rejected the personal peace that Jesus himself promised and is only available through Jesus. You know, Phil, I love the, the, the Upper Room Discourse. I, I think every Christian really does. John chapter 14 uh, through uh, John chapter 17. 
Um, it was his farewell to his disciples. And he told them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, he said that because their hearts were troubled. And then he went on to say this, my peace I give unto you. Not like the world gives. And Phil, what this always does for me, it makes me personalize this. Jesus saying, Ron, I'm giving you my personal peace. So when when um, I don't have peace, when, when I'm worried or anxious about something, I can remember that. I can say, oh, Lord, you gave me your personal peace. But that peace is not available through any other source. And that's why people in the world are always going to be, to coin your term, a mess from the beginning. There's no other way that we can be. That's a good question. Thank you very, very much. We have a caller waiting, Jimmy from San Antonio. Jimmy, good to hear from you. How are you doing? Good, sir. Good, sir. Um, I'm trying to understand the, the seven bowls in Revelation, but that's not the question I want to ask you. But, uh, okay. There's a, there's a friend of mine. Uh, he says that he doesn't like to uh, teach the Old Testament because the new covenant of Jesus Christ came in the New Testament. And I told him, nope. The Old Testament is just as important as the New Testament, and we need to know both of them. And uh, he says, no, no, uh, that doesn't apply anymore. And, um, well, I guess it's important. I know it's important. I know, I know the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Holy Spirit tells me it's important. So, yeah. Jimmy, it's, it's the Word of God, and it reveals the person of God. You know, the New Testament tells us that God lives in unapproachable light. Uh, the Old Testament tells us who that God is. Now, the New Testament, I would disagree with one thing you said, and it's very, very slight. Uh, I don't think it's as important to us uh, in 2022 as the Old Testament is, but it is vitally important. This is the history of God. I always look at the Old Testament. I don't know, Jimmy, uh, you're probably not old enough to remember the Connect the Dots coloring books. Uh, we always had them, you know, go from one to two. And, and then when you'd get, you'd, you'd get this outline of something. And when you connected the dots, you could say, hey, I think that's going to be a bear. I think that's going to be a dog. Well, the New Testament colors in between those lines. And the beauty of the Old Testament is the majesty the, the 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 unbelievable prophetic value only God dares tell the, the 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 future, and He does it with absolute precision. And no other religious writings have ever even tried to do something that. And it demonstrates just how um, important uh, the Old Testament is to us. You know, the Old Testament. Uh, is is uh, Jesus appears in the Old Testament a whole bunch of times as the angel of the Lord. Um, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, the, 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 the book we call our Bible, uh, really 66 books, um, it, it's all about Jesus. It's his story. And knowing how we got to where we are, knowing all of the events and the patience of God and the kindness of God and the character and the nature of God, we're told in the Old Testament about his holiness, about his patience, about his um, compassion and his mercy, and how God is abounding in love. We, we, we read about all of those things in the Old Testament. So um, what we really need to do is understand the perfect unity between old and new. And if you don't have any foundation in the Old Testament, then when you get to Jesus appearing on the scene in the Gospel of Matthew, um, it's going to be very, very confusing, and you're going to have a, a, a real misunderstanding about who Jesus really is. So, Jimmy, I'm with you completely. Um, the, uh, the Old Testament uh, is, is magnificent, and people that avoid it do so uh, to their own loss. So, Jimmy, thank you very, very much. As I said, it's good to hear from you. I've been missing you, my friend. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Leo. Uh, he says, why do you reject 
the amillennial position so confidently when there are really credible scholars who take that position? Well, Leo, I don't think they're all that credible. Um, you know, they, they, to, to, to have an amillennial position, for those of you who may not know what amillennialism is, um, a just simply means no millennium. And what they do is they say uh, there is no thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Um, the, the kingdom is not going to be um, established in Israel. Um, and, and people, you know, they, they think that's so smart, and yet they're rejecting what's before their very eyes. Um, I'll just give you a couple of examples. One, if there is no millennial reign, then the God that we serve has lied to Abraham. If Abraham's promises are not fulfilled, every one of them, then we have a God who can't save us because he's not God. If there is no millennial reign on the throne of David, occupied by an ancestor of David, then God lied. It's that simple. Jesus, of course, is that ancestor. So if Israel, if God breaks his promises to Israel, then what would make any of us think God would keep any of his promises? And remember, if he does that, he can't be God because holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So, Leo, I don't think that's credible scholarship at all. I think it's people who are are trying to, uh, for whatever their motive, and and I've, uh, this idea is called preterism, and um, um, whatever their motive, um, they're dishonest in their scholarship, which is just the opposite of credible scholarship. Let me give you one other example, and this just kills me, and nobody's, no A-mail has ever been able to, to answer this question. If you read Revelation chapter 20, in just the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 20, the 1,000 years is repeated six times. Six times. I just started teaching uh, Revelation chapter 20 um, uh, last Friday. And and six times. And if you read it, when the thousand years are over, for a thousand years, and, and over and over it repeats a thousand years, it's almost like the Holy Spirit is saying, I'm trying to convince you that there's really a thousand years. And there's no way a credible scholar can just sort of wipe that out and say, oh, well, this is all symbolic. It's There's not a single clue that it's symbolic. So, Leo, all you have to do is stop reading the Internet and start reading your Bible, and you're going to find out how crucial it is that there is a legitimate 1,000-year reign on earth. Read Isaiah chapter 60 through 66. Um, I didn't get all the way through the chapter uh, last Friday night, so not uh, not this Friday because it's Good Friday, but the following Friday uh, we're going to be back in. I'm going to finish it. And I'm going to talk about the characteristics of the millennial reign. Because Isaiah tells us what the world is going to be like. He describes it for us in that thousand years. So for anybody to reject that there is going to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, they're outsmarting themselves. And Leo, again, I want to repeat, there's nothing credible about that whatsoever. Thank you for writing in. I appreciate it. Um, Roy asks, um, please explain what being a living sacrifice means. Um, you're, you're speaking of Romans chapter 12. The Romans 12, 1 and 2, actually the foundation verses of our ministry here, Roy. Um, and we've kind of held on to those verses uh, forever. And it's where Paul says, uh, therefore, brethren, in view of God's mercy... I urge you, I beseech you, the King James says, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your, the King James says, your reasonable service. The NIV says your spiritual act of worship. And I think a better translation is your sincere worship before God. 
So being a living sacrifice, you remember the pictures of the sacrifices uh, given to Israel, the lamb uh, or the goat, uh, the offerings, whatever they were, were offered uh, to God, but they were all dead. So Paul is telling him, look, let's forget about it. In, in chapter 12, and sometimes we lose sight of this in the book of Romans, it comes after 9, 10, 11. 9, 10, 11 deal only with Israel. And so what he's saying here is, okay, instead of being like them, they offer dead sacrifices, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And the living sacrifice, Roy, means that uh, we commit our lives to him. And anything short of, of saying, Jesus, you can have all of me. Everything I have is yours. Short of saying that, we're not really making any sacrifice at all. And Paul says that's not real worship. That's not sincere worship. So all it, me- all it means is that we are to offer our bodies uh, wholly. And the idea is not just our physical bodies, but it's everything. Uh, our, 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 our spirit, our strength, everything that we have belongs to God. So, Roy, that's what it means, and it is the best life imaginable, the abundant life Jesus promised. Well, we've got 30 minutes left in the show. We'd love your calls, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. I'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program we've got 30 minutes to take your phone calls and answer your questions 340-9585 wednesday uh, in jesus's passion week is is we call it the day of mystery because the Bible doesn't really give us any of the details. Now, evidently, uh, he was, uh, after two exhausting days in Jerusalem, um, Jesus and his disciples spent the day in Bethany resting, um, preparing for the Passover to come. You remember just before that Jesus um, uh, revealed his power over death by raising Lazarus from the grave, and this is just me talking out loud, but I love thinking about Jesus in that day. You know, when, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, everybody wanted to talk to, wanted to see Jesus because, because of that demonstration of his power. But in Bethany, everybody wanted to talk to Lazarus as well. And I think one of the ways that Jesus would just sort of take sort of the, the, some of the pressure off is by just kind of smiling at Lazarus as people were coming to him and um, and and Lazarus was becoming very effective as as an evangelist. So there really isn't anything to report other than um, imagine how preoccupied Jesus's mind and heart were on this Wednesday, a day with no activity. I don't know if you're anything like me, but there are just some days when you've had enough, you can't take any more, and you just need to chill a little bit. You need to, to rest. Well, Wednesday uh, evidently was that day of rest for Jesus because he also knows, and I've repeated this every day we've talked about this, but Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And so he was preparing himself for the most difficult experience probably anybody's ever had. And of course, um, tomorrow, um, um, will be the Last Supper in preparation for the Passover, where Jesus is, the the real Passover lamb. So again, I remind you, spend some time with Jesus. Um, let him sort of hang out with you. Think about what he was going through. And whenever I do that, all I can think about is how blessed I am because of what he did. Okay, here is a question from Carmen. 
He says, can you be a Christian and not believe Jesus is God? I believe he is the son of God, but others say he is God. I don't find that in the Bible. Carmen, you're not reading the Bible. Uh, Go through Jesus' ministry in the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the gate. All of the I am statements are clearly being understood by his audience. Jesus was making himself equal with God. And so over and over and over, Jesus declares that he's God. Now, sometimes we humans that like to split hairs, we think, well, why didn't he just say, I am God? He did. If you're God, why don't you say it? It is as you said. So, he, you know, the language was different then than it is now. But Carmen, over and over and over, Jesus said he was God. Now, having said that, even if he didn't say he was God, the Bible declares throughout that Jesus is God. So, you are not a Christian if you don't accept your Christ. And if he's the Son of God, but not God the Son, then he's unable to forgive sins because the Bible says only God can forgive sins. These are very, very important. Now, Carmen, I don't know what tradition you are coming from, but both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons will say, yes, he's the Son of God, but they don't believe he's God the Creator God. And if Jesus is not God the Creator, the one who made all things, that's what John says in in the first chapter of his gospel. He made all things. There's nothing that has been made that wasn't made through him. And he adds, he holds all things together. So to be saved, you've got to have the right Jesus. And it can't be Jesus who's less than Creator God. In the beginning, God, it says in Genesis 1.1. So here's what you've got to decide. If Jesus Jesus in your mind and heart isn't God, then you don't really have Jesus at all. And that's where you're going to come up short uh, as you stand before him to be judged for your sins. Uh, you must believe that he is, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And um, my, my counsel to you, Carmen, is to make seeking Jesus and who he is the most important thing in your life. Jesus is God. And if he's not, then we're all lost and silly. He proved he was God. They killed him and he didn't stay dead just as he promised. And the evidence of all of these things are absolutely overwhelming. 340-9585. We've got a phone call. Thank you, producer. He kind of shook me out of it. I was going to the next call. Let's go to Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm not sure if I've got something right now because I'm looking in here and I can't find what I thought I had. Um, I've been thinking about something since we, since Jesus fed the 5,000 and, and he told the disciples, okay, you feed them. And and then it said, I thought it said later that after the miracle, their hearts were hardened. And I can't find where it said that, but I was trying to think, why would their hearts be hardened after a miracle like that? And I thought about it and thought about it. And what I came up with was, if it did say that, was that I wonder if, even though they knew this was a wonderful miracle and they were totally blown away, if the fact that they were put in the spot, in in the sense that that's kind of like the first time where where they had to be the one that um, had to, you know, or or thought they had to, you know, feed the 5,000 when they didn't have hardly anything, even though Jesus blessed it. But Jesus didn't give them like a road map and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to bless this. The Father's going to bless this food, and it's going to multiply, and everybody's going to eat. Instead, he just said, here, you take this and feed them. And I wonder if they kind of felt like, well, wow, how are we going to do that? That's, you know, kind of putting them on the spot. And if maybe that that later on, you know, they thought about, well, well, you know, that was really hard if their heart got hardened. So anyways, I don't even know if this is right, what I what I have here, because I can't find where it said what I thought it said. So yeah. I think yeah, that sometimes... It, you, you are... 
you you are right, Cindy. It, it it does say their hearts were hardened, but it doesn't mean their hearts were hardened against Jesus or anything. What that means is another gospel account says that they didn't understand um, the, the lesson from the feeding of the five thousand. Now let me let me make this even more complicated for you because we're gonna we're gonna come soon to another event where they feed four thousand. Where are we going to get food for all these people? And Jesus, I think, is going to shake his head and said, My goodness, don't you remember? We just I gave you a basket full of souvenirs. Each of you has a basket full of memories. There were twelve baskets left over after the people had, had eaten more than more than they could eat. So uh, I think it was just one of those things where uh, when they went out onto the sea, the Sea of Galilee, uh, and they were in danger, and things were hard. Uh, I think they just sort of forgot about the miracle. Now, we humans, Cindy, have this capacity to, to God will move in our lives. Uh, he'll move through our lives uh, with such power. And then we, we think, praise the Lord, we're thrilled. And then uh, we go about our, our daily life, and the next time we encounter a problem, we have a tendency to forget about how God moved. And we want God to move more quickly. When he doesn't, we sort of forget about it. We take matters into our own hands. And that's uh, exactly what the feeding of the 5,000 and the idea that their hearts were hard and they didn't understand about the the, the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000 that happened when they were in danger, when they'd seen Jesus walking on the water about to pass them by. So, again, their hearts were hardened. It's not like the hearts of sinners get hard. It's different. It's just that, you know, it's what did you, what have you done for me lately kind of approach. Now, I want to be sure you've got the, the, the chronology correct, too, because in the feeding of the 5,000, um, the, the idea, well, well, where are we going to get it? We take, Philip says, take eight-month wages to buy uh, this many people of food. And Jesus said, well, you give them something to eat. Wouldn't you have loved to see the look on their faces when Jesus said that? But see, this was a miracle, not just for the people, but I believe this was a miracle primarily for Jesus' disciples. He's showing them, you guys have seen me raise the dead. You guys have seen me cast out demons. You've seen me heal blind people and crippled people and and, and, and demon-possessed people. You've seen all of this with your own eyes. Why do you doubt? And Cindy, that's the reason that, that Jesus is continually asking them, Oh, ye of little faith, have I been with you for so long? And you still don't trust me, is basically what he's saying. So we're going to see... That repeatedly, as Jesus goes to the cross, unless we are too hard on on the twelve, uh, the truth is that we who live two thousand or so years later, uh, we are people who who um, frankly forget about what God has done. The next time a crisis comes up, now there's an enemy who tries to get us to forget, uh, an enemy who tries to get us to focus on all the wrong things. Uh, Jesus, um, with his disciples, he's saying, just keep your eyes on me and you'll be okay. And Cindy, the truth is, when things get hard or we encounter things that we don't understand, uh, that's when we start forgetting. uh, And that's because our hearts are hard as well. Good question, Cindy. Thank you very, very much. This is a question from Armando. He said, how can I walk the line between being proud and having good self-esteem? Armando, um, the way you always walk the line, and and you're talking about being being proud in a godly way and still being humble, I think the the only way you traverse that is by being with Jesus. And I I don't mean to be um, flippant about uh, the answer. But but it's impossible to be proud of you when you're with Jesus. It's impossible. And then our source of pride becomes what God is doing in us and through us. In, in his letters to the Corinthians, Paul, he can't believe he's doing it, but he says, I'm out of my mind to speak like this. And then he goes, but I must go on boasting. And then he makes sure we understand, not about me, but what God has done through me or in me. And uh, we can feel good about ourselves when we're walking with Jesus. 
But part of really feeling good about ourselves is understanding that if we're distant from the Lord, if we're not walking with Jesus, um, then we can't do good and we won't uh, feel good about ourselves. So I just think it's a matter of just focusing on Jesus. And if you focus on him, then and only then are you going to be in that place where um, you just know you've pleased him. Now, self-esteem is something different, Armando. I, I always separate the two. There's there's bad pride and there's godly pride. But self-esteem is something different. Self-esteem is a is a worldly concept. You know, uh, we, we want our kids to have self-esteem, so we give everybody a trophy. It doesn't matter if they won or they lost. Um, that That's not real. That's, that's artificial. Uh, how can somebody have self-esteem if we're being rewarded for something we didn't do? Can you imagine the Major League Baseball season started? I'm a baseball fan. Major League Baseball season just started. And they're worried about people who have who have poor self-esteem. And a guy gets up and he strikes out in three pitches. Can you imagine the umpire saying, well, well, you know what? We'll give you another chance because we don't want your self-esteem to be hurt. Life teaches us to deal with success and failure. And the world that we live in has so blurred that line, uh, they believe that that uh, um, uh, dealing with failure, even admitting failure, is is an act of low self-esteem, and and we're told that it's it's bad, but it's simply a, a, an artificial or a man-made thing. Uh, I know I feel good about me when I'm with Jesus. I don't feel good about me when I'm not with Jesus, and because I recognize that, I'm motivated, Armando, to spend more time with Jesus. Because I want to feel good about what I'm doing. I want to feel good. I had the, the, the rare privilege this, this past Sunday um, teaching the church. And we were talking about producing fruit. It was on Palm Sunday and Jesus was reaching around for, for the, the figs in the tree. And he wanted something to eat and he found out the tree had no fruit. It was lying to him. And, and, um, uh, and you know, I think... If we examine the fruit in our lives, not just the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. If we're really with Jesus, those are the characteristics that we're going to be demonstrating. But but also the fruit that comes from our lives. And in three services, Armando, I was able to look out into a crowd of people. And I was able to say, when I ask God to check around the, the, the leaves of my life, Look at the fruit he sees. And I said to them, it's the fruit that's looking back at me. You are the fruit. You are the the demonstration that I'm serving God. And any man or any woman who is really faithfully serving the Lord is going to have so many examples of good fruit in their lives that you can't help but to feel good about yourself. But please don't misunderstand. That is nothing to do with self-esteem. Um, that is uh, artificial. Um, here's a called-in question. Um, anonymously explain 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 in the King James Version. Well, I'm going to do that out of the King James, although I'm looking at the NIV normally. It says, "Do not Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a shame unto him. Now, what you have to understand, caller, is that chapter 11 deals with one subject and only one subject, and that's authority. It deals with the subject of authority, and Paul is talking in Corinth, addressing a cultural situation. The women were out of control, not being under the authority of their husbands, and he's just going into great lengths to describe that it is a shame to pray without being under authority. Now, he's using hair. A couple of things you have to remember or have to understand about Corinth. Corinth was a city dominated by um, the, the, the goddess Diana or Artemis, um, and um, uh, there, there was sexual immorality going on. That, that was really how worship was done. And so there were all kinds of prostitutes. And in Corinth, the female prostitutes shaved their heads. It was sort of a way to say, I'm available. 
You can worship with me. And that's how they made their living. Um, and so what he's saying is, look, by nature, women have long hair. By nature, men have short hair. And so really, the, 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 the shamefulness is if you're not under the authority, women of your husband, men, if you're not under the authority of Christ, then in fact, uh, you're out of control and out of the will of God. Now, we know this is a cultural, a local application. There's no appeal to Genesis. And, and when he says things like, I do not permit a woman to speak in church, um, we know he doesn't mean that because we also know there were women prophetesses. There were, there were, were, were women um, who, who, who we know spoke in church. Um, um, Priscilla, uh, the, the wife of Aquila being one of them. So you've got to understand, that's why we need to be workmen, workwomen, rightly dividing the word of God. Um, so um, what he's saying is this, is this is about authority. That's the subject. It's not about the length of hair. Now, we believe, caller, that in Corinth, uh, not in Corinth, I'm sorry, we believe that, that uh, all of Jesus' disciples uh, and Jesus himself had long hair. Now, if that's true, as is most often pictured, and there's there's references to their hair in ancient writings, um, um, if they had long hair, certainly it's not shameful just to have long hair. So, again, that's not the context of the passage. It's all and only about being under the God-ordained authority. Jesus said, um, 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 I'm, I'm under the authority of God the Father, he said, men, you're under my authority. Um, women, you're under the authority of your husband. And that's the role that we have in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's the way he's established it. So that's all that's going on there, Anonymous. Thank you for the question. Uh, I will recommend you. I do a much more in-depth teaching on that. Uh, if you would go to calvarysa.com, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And my notes are there, but also you can listen to the teaching and all the stuff there is free. So you don't have to worry about uh, paying for anything. Boy, we're already inside five minutes for this program. Let's see. Here's a question from Aurora. Uh, Do you believe that God always intended Gentiles to be saved? Or was it just a reaction to being rejected by the Jews? Um, Aurora, God always intended for Gentiles to be saved. Remember, God never gets caught off guard. Uh, He never has to react to anything uh, because God knows everything. Uh, The prophet Isaiah uh, speaks about Gentile inclusion uh, in the plan of God. Uh, Jesus himself, he said, um, I have sheep that are not of this fold or of this pen. And the idea there is is, uh, sheep outside the Jewish family. Um, referring to Gentiles. Now, Jews didn't want Gentiles to be saved. They didn't believe there was anything at all uh, uh, of virtue uh, of Gentiles. Um, but but Jesus kept reminding them we, we, it was always our intention. So it's not like when we got to Acts chapter 10, God says, well, boy, my church is entirely Jewish. I better do something. This was always a part of God's plan, and it happened at exactly the right time. Good question, Aurora. This will be the last question uh, of today. And it is from Valerie. And she says, should Christian families boycott everything Disney? Um, Valerie, let me start by saying uh, what Disney is doing. uh, They're they're, they're, um, proactive, and that's putting it nicely, their proactive position on uh, LBGTQ issues. Uh, in particular, they are um, really getting pushy about transgenderism, about uh, uh, about men being women and women being men. Um, it is evil and it's wicked and it is offensive. However, boycotts, why would we do that? Why would we expect anything less than um, sin from uh, a secular organization. 
Uh, I know we get trapped, you know, well, it's supposed to be wholesome entertainment. Well, uh, remember, the devil is a planner. He's always had a plan. He's always been patient. Just the right time, he's going to come to the forefront. And that's exactly what he's done with Disney. And I would hate to think that I would have to get up at a pulpit and tell people, don't take your children to Disney, when, in fact, I know in our church, we have a lot of families that love Disney. A lot of them. And what they do is offensive. However, you can't go anywhere in this world, in a secular environment, and not be offended. So I just think we ought to show a little bit more faith in God, a little bit more trust in his um, uh, being able to separate the good from the bad, uh, him paying back those who are being used by the devil. Uh, God will take care of it. And I think if you want to go to um, Disney, now I think there are probably some shows that you shouldn't see. They're doing everything they can to cram um, uh, LBGTQ issues uh, down the throats of children. I mean, literally, they're brainwashing children. So I'm, I would be reluctant to let my kids see uh, Disney movies. Um, if if they were going to watch them, I'd want to be there with them. That, to me, would be a fate worse than death. But but I'd want to be there so we could talk about it and show them and just say, you see, these are people that don't know Jesus Christ. Uh, but to boycott uh, Disneyland or Disney World, um, you know, why do we have to take the fun out of everything? Um, I, I think there's times when um, Christians being in the middle of things going on at Disney is a really good thing because that's a a really dark place where we can be light. So, Valerie, no, I don't think we should boycott them at all. I think just trust the Lord. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. May God bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.